0: upon hearing what the lord asked of him the rich young ruler walked away apparently unwilling to part with his material wealth in the name of eternal progress perhaps this is the ideal time to contemplate the question for ourselves what lack i yet what am i willing to give up in the name of eternal progress how can i better follow jesus christ i invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I prefer
1: myself to receive answers by just getting myself in the right mindset. I tell myself, whatever
2: the answer is, I'm willing to just listen and obey. I think the biggest thing that I do is try to find some some place where I can be in the quiet so that I can hear His answer. Because otherwise, if I'm just out in the noise I miss it.
3: Receiving answers takes a little bit of effort and work on my part and and that usually involves going to the scriptures but not just reading but doing some pondering and some seeking and thinking about what I'm reading. The Lord has taught me to be patient receiving answers oftentimes I want these answers to come right away but the Lord's time I
1: found out is the best time because he knows me personally and he knows what is best for me.
0: Welcome everybody. My name is Ben Lomu and I'm your host. Our gospel scholar today is Dr. Melissa Inouye. Dr. Inouye has a PhD in East Asian languages and civilizations from Harvard University and has done work with the church history department on the Global Storage Project. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. So excited to be here. And our special guest today seated next to Melissa is Jason Whiting. Dr. Whiting received his PhD from Michigan State University and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He has won awards for his research and writing and is currently a professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Jason,
3: we're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: And we also wanna welcome our studio audience. Thank you all for being here. And to their viewers at home, thank you very much for joining us. Throughout this discussion, we'll invite you to share your experiences with us on any of our social media platforms. For downloadable resources for study and teaching, visit byutv.org slash come follow up for more. Today, we're going to be basing our discussions on Matthew chapters 19 and 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. As usual, this tracks with the weekly study plan outlined in the Come Follow Me resource provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we are going to be discussing today are, if I ask the Lord, He will teach me what I need to do to inherit eternal life, and what does God want for our family relationships. After our initial discussion of these topics with our panel and studio audience, we'll move on to footnotes which is a deeper dive into the scriptures and these topics with just our guest and scholar. Okay, so Melissa, before we start into our first topic, do you want to give us a a brief overview of kind of the historical context of what is happening in these chapters?
1: Sure. So at this point, the part of the story that we're getting is where Jesus comes down from Galilee. So Galilee is in kind of the northern part and comes south heading towards Jerusalem where he'll be in chapter 11 of Mark. And at this point, he has a lot of popularity. People are following him around, bringing their sick to him to be healed. So he's, he's generating a lot of buzz, I think we'd say. Um, and the, also the tension though, from people who don't like him is ratcheting up. He's attracted the notice of people who are threatened by him. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we see them appear in these chapters as well.
0: So Jason, what are your thoughts on who is involved? What's going on here?
3: in this instance there's a young man who approaches jesus as you say he's attracted a lot of attention a lot of interest and so there's a young man who in the scriptures is discussed as luke calls him a ruler so he's got some power and then of course he has a lot of means as we will talk about in this story
0: and this is what leads into our our first topic if i ask the lord he will teach me what i need to do to inherit eternal life so melissa do you mind kind of telling us a little bit about him, what sets up this conversation with Jesus, and also, how do the different accounts from the Gospels teach us different aspects of this story?
1: So this is... a. A famous story, and it's, as you say, it's recounted in three different ways. Uh, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 18, Matthew chapter 19. And as I said, um, at this point, Jesus had become really popular. People had heard about him, not only as a healer, but also as a moral teacher. So you can see that this man had heard about him and, and really valued him. It says in verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions it sounds like um, he really, really wanted to follow Jesus. And and you can see um, in this verse how torn he was. It says he went away grieving.
3: You know, I think he we give him the benefit of the doubt in that he is sincere. He's genuinely coming to Jesus and he's saying, what can I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. And then they talk about the commandments and then he says, what lack I yet? And that, that question is one of, humility and sincerity and it's one that I think we all need to be asking if we want to be open to learning and we want to be humble. In fact, I like that detail in Mark where it says Jesus, you know, after they have this little discussion, it says Jesus loved him. Mm-hmm. And I think Jesus probably looks at us sometimes with our efforts to say, what can I do better? And then we then sometimes fall short. And I think Jesus, you know, feels sympathy like you're doing the best you can I'm asking you to do more, but I know that it's hard. And so I guess I appreciated that, that detail of Jesus's both challenge and also his love.
0: You know, and when you look at this young man, he's amazing. He honors his parents, he loves his neighbor. He's really trying. And sometimes I think it may, perhaps we give him a bad rap. I don't know if he really realized that he would be asked to give up everything he has. And that's why I think we get this reaction from him of like shock and he's stunned. So I'd love to ask the audience, when have you received an unexpected answer to a prayer and how did you react to that? Julia.
1: Yes, I have received a, a difficult answer at one point in my life when I was 26. I asked the Lord, what should I do now with my life? And the answer was, I hear a voice, you know, saying to me, pack your luggage and go. And I knew for sure that I had to come to Utah. And that's why I'm here 22 years now.
0: And Julie, what was that process like for you deciding to actually make that move once you received your answer?
1: It was, you know, a process of praying. I had to pray a lot until I had to listen to this small voice. I had to leave my parents and my family. I knew I had to be obedient. And I knew
0: the Lord wants me here for some reason. And yeah. Well, thank you so much. What are some of your thoughts? That's a pretty relatable experience to what is happening in scriptures when you know this young ruler prays for an answer, he gets something he may may not have expected. How can we connect with what Julia is, is talking with us with this story?
3: I think Julia's story really is powerful because it illustrates exactly what was going on with this young ruler, which is, will you be willing to set aside maybe what you're comfortable with or what you want to do and do what I'm asking you to do? And sometimes it happens in big ways, like with the rich young ruler or with Julia's case, like that's a pretty big, you know, pack up your life and move from Bolivia to the US. But other times it's just in subtle ways, right? Our day-to-day experiences of, are you willing to go read your scriptures and say your prayers or do you pass that up and go surf the news or social media, right? But I I just think it's a constant challenge for us in our discipleship. Do we choose to set aside what we want for what God wants or do we pursue our own, our own desires? And that's, I think, a lifetime challenge.
0: I wonder if sometimes the answer that we get is smaller than we expected. Like, wait, really? That simple? You want me to read my scriptures and say my prayers and that'll, that'll help out my life? Any thoughts, Melissa?
1: As some of you might know, I have um, dealt with cancer since mm-hmm. 2017. And I remember I was driving in a car in 2019 after this kind of nasty recurrence. And all of a sudden, I just felt the spirit, this outpouring of the spirit. I was like trying to drive. I was like, the tears were streaming from my eyes. It just kind of of came randomly. And I feel like in that moment, God was telling me, um, you're not getting your money's worth out of your cancer yet. I got this feeling that I was supposed to be learning something that I wasn't learning in, in this moment, and it was that I lacked this dependence on God as one depends on water and air and life. It was pretty powerful. And, and I realized that even when we're doing super hard things, we can turn some part of it, we can consecrate some part of it into an experience that will help us to grow. And, and I've been working on that. And I know that's what I lack, uh, because especially, I think, you know, when we're doing well, when we have enough Food to eat, and we have a place to live. Sometimes we're like, "Wow, it's like we're all good," you know. But um, I'm grateful to have received that message. To me,
0: it, it just seems
1: vitally important.
0: I really appreciate what you bring, what you add to this conversation and to uh, this discussion. So, thank you for sharing that. Sometimes it can be really difficult to asking these questions, and and it takes a lot of, of humility, uh, you know, to accept that answer that sometimes we don't really uh, always expect.
1: That reminds me of something that um, President Camille Johnson said. I think she put it really beautifully. She said, Why then are we sometimes resistant to asking for this kind of heavenly help? Truth manifest to us by the Holy Ghost. We don't want to ask a question and get an answer that doesn't fit neatly into the story we are writing for ourselves. Frankly, few of us would probably write into our stories the trials that refine us. The beautiful struggles written into our stories are what draw us closer to the Savior and refine us
0: making us more like Him? You know, it's one thing to to ask a question. It's another thing to do what is the response that you get from that question. And uh, one of our viewers posed a question about that. And I'd love to get some of your thoughts on this. And specifically, Jason, this is not always questions that we ask to God. In in family relationships, sometimes we have to ask hard questions and be prepared for answers that we receive. So I'd love to uh, get your take on that with your experience after we see what the viewer has to say.
4: Hi, my name is Paul and I am from Naga City, Philippines. Just like the rich young man, I sometimes wonder if I will be ready when the time comes that the Lord asks something challenging or hard for me. So my question is, what
0: preparations can I make today so that I will have the courage to go and
3: do whatever the Lord asks for me?
0: So preparing to go and do, it can be difficult.
3: Sure, it's a good question. The preparations, I think, have to do with developing an openness and a humility that we've been talking about in regards to, you know, we've talked about these difficult trials that some people have experienced. And if we're humble and if we're reaching to God, we will learn things. It might be painful and it might be challenging, but we'll learn. If we're not humble, we won't learn. So let's shift that to family relationships, which... You know, all families are, are different, but within family relationships, we have opportunities to learn and grow from each other. And it's in part because they're challenging. So the rich young ruler asks, what lack I yet? And it reminded me of a story that I heard when I was a student at BYU. One of the professors asked a group of, of husbands, he was talking to, to men about their marriages. And he said, brethren, how many of you would like to have a revelation? And they said, I would like to have a revelation. And he said, go home and ask your wives, how can I be a better husband? <laughs> <laughs> and, and right, that seems like a, maybe sort of an obvious question, but who does that, right? Who goes to their spouse and just says, tell me what I can do to be better? Because again, that's a hard question, just like it was for this rich young man, but, but it's a powerful one. I remember as a new missionary, I, I got a companion and we were both really young in the mission. He wasn't my senior companion, I wasn't his senior companion, but he said the same thing, Elder Whiting, how can I be better? How can I help you? And that, that really stuck out to me you know, 30 plus years later, because again, it's just a great question. How can I be better? What lack yet? I think it applies in family relationships, but it applies everywhere if we're willing to ask it.
0: Well, thank you both for your comments and for your insights and for the audience. Thank you so much for contributing uh, to our discussion so far. And for you at home, how has the Spirit taught you as you seek answers and insight? Share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Instagram.
4: I feel like in God's plan, relationships are important because in order to be like Him, we need to love like Him. We're supposed to love each other so we can learn to love other people, even if they're not like,
2: even if they don't agree with us sometimes.
4: God wants our families to be united no matter how like divided or like different our opinions are. He wants us to love each other and kind of like celebrate our differences, I guess, and kind of just unite together.
1: Every single person on this earth is a son or daughter of God, and he wants us all to get along and to work together to help each other achieve eternal life. So, I think that's helping him carry out his eternal purposes.
0: Our second topic today is, what does God want for our family relationships? So in addition to learning about the young rich ruler in these chapters, we also get a few verses about family, marriage. Melissa, what context can you provide for us as we go into our second topic on family relationships?
1: Well, in these chapters that we're discussing, there's a, Jesus says something about divorce which I always thought was kind of random, like why is, you know, Jesus doesn't say that much about marriage at all, so why does Jesus randomly say these things on divorce? But the context for this is that the Pharisees are trying to trap him by asking a question that at the time and in this context was super sensitive. There was a political danger in it because Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, had just been killed for criticizing the remarriage after a divorce of Herod. And the other issue is that in the Old Testament scriptures, there are different positions on divorce. And so if um, Jesus answered in one way, they could catch him with the other scriptures. If he answered in that latter way, they could catch him with the former scriptures. So in that context, it doesn't seem quite so random anymore. It was like a a sensitive, politically charged, Mm -hmm. scripturally relevant question. And they were trying to ask him. And Jesus responds in verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So bringing, um, talking about men and women with parity as, um, you know, the, the rules apply to them equally, which is quite interesting.
0: Yeah, Jason, given what little is written in the scripture, specifically about uh, marriage and family, what are some things that we should consider as we discuss this topic?
3: Yeah, he doesn't talk a lot about it. He emphasizes the sacredness of marriage. As, as Melissa said, he, he emphasizes, to men specifically, not throwing away marriage for trivial reasons. He talks about you know, leaving father and mother and becoming one flesh, that intimate aspect of relationships. I think, though, it's this is where the restored gospel really can come in helpful in, for our day and age because when in the Doctrine and Covenants, for example, and then all the prophets since Joseph Smith have talked about additional information that we have about the family. For example, we know that we lived in family relationships before we came here. We have heavenly parents. We then can You know, enter into family and marital relationships here, and those family relationships can continue on after this life. And we also just have a lot of guidance from modern prophets about the ways to think about the sacredness of family relationships and marriage and the ways to treat each other and principles that apply. And, you know, things like the family proclamation give us a lot of guidance. So, anyway, I think we can uh, build on what Jesus said and then rely on some of these other things that we have now, and there's a lot.
0: And it's safe to say that families come in all different shapes and sizes. And we have a wonderful quote uh, from Sister Kathleen Hughes uh, about this. She says, it's important for us to realize that there is no one way that a righteous family looks. Some righteous families have two parents, but sometimes through death or divorce, there is only one. Some righteous families have many children and other families, at least for the moment, have none. Most members are single for part of their lives, but Elder Marvin J. Ashton taught us that God and one are a family. In some righteous families, only the father works outside the home, and other times, both adults must work. So, though we may differ, what righteous families have in common are the covenants that they hold sacred.
1: I like that quote, because when Jesus says, you know, Jesus' reference, um, to this issue um, refers to yeah, these covenants that people have to each other, saying you just can't get tired of it and just check your
0: wife. So how have you been able to incorporate gospel principles uh, considering the uniqueness of your own families? Janae.
2: So I actually am divorced, and I was a single mom of a three-year-old. And I heard a lot of the church teachings about family mm-hmm. and you're supposed to be married. And a lot of these scriptures that say that divorce is not good. And um, it was really hard for me. I thought that I was doing the wrong thing. And it took me a long time. And I had to search out quotes like you just read that said, our families can look different, but they can be OK, and they can be righteous.
0: Jason, what guidance would you give to Janae and others that perhaps are in a similar situation as far as how to create a a strong, healthy family environment within our own unique circumstances?
3: What I think the gospel does really well is talk about principles that apply regardless of what your family looks like. Again, because they all have their own versions. And so so you can't get a list of one to ten things that everybody has to do these exact things. What you can get are some, some ideas about uh, guidelines and principles. And I think of the Family Proclamation, which I'll read just a little bit uh, from this, which it says, happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded on the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreational activities. So. For a single mother with a little kid, you can still think about something like love and compassion and respect or a retired couple or a big family or divorce death you know all the any version of a family can talk about how to improve in regards to some of these things like having respect with each other as one example and another point I would make it's hard when families aren't where we wish they would be but The reality is that everybody has their choice, and sometimes people are going to make choices that affect families or marriages to where they aren't going to succeed, and that's unfortunate. You know, people have sometimes influences that are hard or just their own personal struggles. So it's just a complicated issue. Everybody's situation is a little bit different. I think our task is to try to apply these principles as best we can in our own lives and and then we, you know, we can't control what other people are going to do. But, um, but I do think we can just seek to do that in whatever family situation we're in.
0: Is there a main common denominator that you have found that helps families find that happiness that so often we seek?
3: Well, I would come back to what the proclamation talked about, which are these types of mm-hmm. principles. And, and it, it actually relates to our earlier discussion about humility and being open to compromise it's a little bit ironic that the people who are least open, least humble, most selfish end up being the least happy, right? When we're more likely to uh, put others first and to, to try to be loving and caring, that tends to make things better for everybody. But again, like in a marriage, both people have to be doing that. If one person is doing it and the other one isn't, you've got a problem. And sometimes that happens in unhealthy relationships where one person might be the more blaming or the one that's not accepting influence, the one that's always insisting that things have to be their version. And they might be misusing gospel principles like, well, you just have to forgive me. You know, and that doesn't work if both are not trying, if they're not, if both are not trying to you know, repent and to be kind. If, one, if only one person's doing it, then it becomes out of balance and unhealthy. So if you have two people that are working on things, things are probably gonna get better. If you don't, it's going to be harder.
0: So Melissa, how do we reconcile between what we read in the scriptures on you know, some of the situations versus what we're being taught today on what makes a, a healthy, functional family? Context is so
1: important, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's why when, when you just read the scriptures as they are in the text, you're like, oh, why is Jesus, you know, being so judgmental about divorce. <laughs> um, but when you see the, the context, you know, 2,000 years ago, how it's like it's an e- economic issue, the livelihood of the woman, then I can read these scriptures a little differently as Jesus is saying, you know, it's not okay to just leave someone without economic provision and remember the promises that you made. You know, don't, don't walk away from those promises that you made. So from that point of view, it makes more sense to me, which you see constantly throughout Jesus's ministry, where people will say, Why don't you follow this rule, Jesus? And Jesus always kind of tempers it to minister to people who have less power and who are on the margins. And we can think about that in our families and in our broader relationships, like in our wards as well. You know, whose voice can I help to amplify? Who is not at the center of this party? And how can I bring them in?
0: I would love to hear from our audience. How have you found happiness within your own family by incorporating the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Angie.
4: Um, In my experience, it goes beyond our own home. Um, Happiness isn't found in every home. We need to at all times remember, we're all brothers and sisters in the gospel. That brings joy to my family but it also brings joy to those around us. There's many who don't have solid homes and it's no fault of their own. So being a brother or a sister or a mother or a father doesn't stop inside our houses. Um, We have to be there for everybody. Um, I have loved ones that would not be here today if it hadn't been from someone outside their home. But as we all know, we're all, Children of God, and we need each other. And that in and of itself brings joy to our, our own homes um, as we strive to be more Christ like in that way.
0: I love hearing that. I love hearing these examples of, you know, working together uh, as a family unit because ultimately that's what we're trying to do. And all families look so different. If we keep these principles of the gospel at the forefront and we strive to, to live the teachings of Jesus Christ, then we can find find that happiness that we are all seeking.
3: And I think that's one of the reasons that we are in family relationships in the first place. And I think God puts us in these relationships in part, hopefully we receive you know nurturing and, and love and teachings and, and all that, but we also have challenges to be helpful to each other and to uh, do things that we might not necessarily do. And, and sometimes we get painful feedback like we talked about earlier, and those, those all tend to help us generate the kinds of virtues and attributes that we need to be a better disciple you know things like unselfishness and love and long-suffering even and patience and understanding families in whatever version all have uh, all contribute to those kinds of life lessons and uh, it's important
0: so in the big scheme of things as we as we take a step back if we look at the the plan of salvation in its entirety What would you say is the role in helping us get to where we need to be and where God wants us to be?
3: In in families, we teach each other. Parents have this additional responsibility because of their additional power, which is the Spider-Man concept, right? (laughs) (laughs) With more power comes more responsibility. But that's true. And it's it's a doctrinal one, too. Parents have this responsibility to step up and to teach. And the scriptures talk about that, too, you know, and not suffering that are children go hungry or naked or fight and quarrel with each other. That's another King Benjamin thing. Mm-hmm. So, so there's just these, these things that we're asked to do in families that we start when we're young and we learn, and then we kind of continue to grow into these additional roles. And any parent knows, you know, sometimes that takes sacrifice. And you get up in the middle of the night and you have to set aside your interests for the kids. And, and all of that, again, is helpful if we learn those lessons and if we become more patient and kind, then we have happier family relationships. If we don't learn those lessons, if we resist and we become selfish and mean, then families don't do very well. And sometimes that does happen. And you know, as we've talked about, that's, that's sad, but that's part of the challenge as well.
0: Melissa, what are some of your thoughts on, on just the power that the, the principle of unity can have within a family and a community?
1: Um, I think if we look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, honor your father and mother also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can see how families are the perfect place to try to achieve unity because they're so disunified naturally. You know, just my kids have such different personalities. I've got different personalities from my parents. But, you know, just within families, especially when you look, look at, like large families, you know, multi-generational families, families by by choice as well as by birth. When we choose each other despite our differences, that's that's true unity. It's not like in our family we are all the same way and we all do these things and we all tick these boxes and like, yay. It's just really hard, I think, to achieve unity in families. But that's the whole point, I think. You know, the key thing Jesus said was, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount was, you know, to 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 love your enemies. And, and, and often I think, you know, like our children's, I think, first natural enemies are, are each other in some ways. Like they fight over toys. They fight over the dog. They fight over you know, everything. So I just think that those, those natural conflicts that arise because of difference that come up in families are, that's our basic school ground for, for trying to be, to do the things that Jesus told us to do.
0: You know, that falls perfectly in line with what Sister Reina Aperto taught about how diverse we are and how important it is for unity. She says, every one of our paths is different, yet we walk them together. Our path is not about what we have done or where we have been. It is about where we are going and what we're becoming in unity. When we counsel together, guided by the Holy Ghost, we can see where we are and where we need to be. The Holy Ghost gives us a vision that our natural eyes cannot see because revelation is scattered among us. And when we put that revelation together, we can see more. Thank you both for your contributions, your comments, and for the audience. Thank you so much for adding to the second topic that we've been discussing, what does God want for our family relationships? Coming up in footnotes, Melissa, Jason, and I will sit together and dive deeper into the scriptures history, context, and more.
2: So when the Spirit communicates with me, I get a thought in my head, and then I act on it. It's just a flash of a thought. And I listen to it, and I do it. When I feel the Spirit, it's usually a flash thought or um, a warm blanket around me.
3: The Spirit communicates with me through good feelings and through motivating feelings. For example, if I'm reading something in the scriptures, I feel this desire to be a better person, and that is, for me, one of the main uh, benefits from feeling the Spirit.
0: Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to sharing the rest of our discussion on Matthew chapters 19 and 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18 with Melissa and Jason. Let's get started. I'm excited because now we get to expand and really go into some of the things we may have missed. But first we have to address Melissa. I love how you always use different versions of the scriptures. For example, you have the Revised Standard Version that you quoted from. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what sort of insights you gain from using the different versions of the Bible?
1: Well, the King James Version was written for people in the 1600s in their language. And I like that um, this one is a study Bible because it's written in plain language that I can understand. And also it has a ton of um, notes that kind of explain things that I wouldn't pick up on because I'm a 21st century person. I also like this translation here. This is the David Bentley Hart translation of the New Testament. And um, this one is like an extremely literal translation. For example, instead of Christ, it says, you know, the anointed one okay um i just feel like sometimes when i read the, the i've read the scriptures so many times in in the like these are my missionary scriptures and then sometimes when i read them i, I, I kind of feel like i'm on this like train like a reading train okay you know, like i know where the train is going to go and i like know what it's going to say and that that keeps me from noticing you know new things about it so when i when i, when I read a different um translation it helps me notice new things because the language feels different
0: i love it i think it's great i love the perspective that you bring Um, You know, when you share all these different versions, and I think we could all, you know, learn from that as well. So thank you. Okay, so there's a few things that we want to jump into as we're talking about the Savior and his teaching. Um, There's something he mentions about children. Do you want to start us off talking, Jason, about what the Savior teaches us about little children in these verses?
3: Yeah, it's an important Instance of of the savior's perspective, which is different than than what his disciples comment about. Which is these children are approaching him. They they see the savior. Maybe they are drawn to him. Maybe they love him. But the, his apostles, the disciples, say, oh, "Don't bother him. Right? The, you know, what are? Why would? Why would he want to spend time with children when he's teaching these important things?" And I think he's emphasizing both the innocence of and the purity of and maybe the humility of children, and also just his you know love for children which is an important reminder for all of us. And he then goes on to talk about who offends one of these children, you know, who those that, that hurt or, or, or offend children. As he says that it. uh, it's better for them that a millstone is tied around their neck and that they're cast into the sea. That's a pretty strong mm-hmm. statement. Um, and when I read that, I think of, you know, I'm a, I'm a family therapist and I research things about abuse and really difficult topics. And it is heartbreaking to hear stories of, especially children, anyone who's heard is heartbreaking, but children, especially because of their innocence and their purity. And it's unfortunately all too common in our world that children are mistreated, used, uh, uh, neglected uh, in various ways. And those kinds of things just have long lasting impacts on somebody's, uh, you know, the way they see the the world, the way they see themselves. So I I think that's a good reminder for all of us, just how important it is to to be at our best and to treat children with the love and care and nurture that they deserve and that the Savior would want us to.
0: How important is it for us to recenter our attention and really help them uh, to become a part of our everyday lives?
3: I think it's a constant challenge. And I was just talking to a a man the other day about, he has a big family, he's struggling with some of his teenagers and his younger kids, and, and he feels inadequate. And I said, look, any parent is going to have challenges to their self-esteem because there's no perfect ways of dealing with children. But we can continue to try to do the best we can. We can try to be loving. We can try to provide what they need. And then when we make mistakes, we can try to come back and apologize and do better. We're not going to be perfect parents, Mm -hmm. but we will be better parents as we seek help from the Lord, as we work at it. And in more standard situations or, or family circumstances, people can just try to do the best they can. And, you know, we're resilient as children and as people. People are going to be okay and, you know, and, and benefit from, from parenting that is good, good effort parenting. <laughs>
0: right? Good effort parenting. So let's talk about uh, one of these parables, the parable of the laborers. Um, Melissa, do you want to give us kind of an overview of what this is and then we'll kind of break it down and see what we can learn from it?
1: Sure. So this is a parable about um, Jesus says in um, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, The kingdom of the heavens is like a man, a master of a household who went out in the early morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And agreeing with the workers upon a denarius for the day, he sent them out into the vineyard. And then it shows how um, later on he goes out and finds some more people who are standing around. He says, hey, come work in my vineyard. And, and later on, still some more people come working in the vineyard. And even till the very end, like right, like at the, I think it says like the 11th hour. And at the end he says, all right, good job, everyone. Here is your denarius.
0: No matter if you work eight hours or one hour, you get the same. Right. And the people who
1: um, were hired at the very beginning said, that's not fair. We've been out here in the sun all day working and these guys were just standing around and they barely just joined us. And you're still paying them the same as us. And Jesus says, I agree. You said you would do it for Denarius. So why are you freaking out that I'm so generous with these mm-hmm. other people? And I think there's a lot of that uh, in life, right? Because mm-hmm. fairness is not only I must get what is due to me, but other people must not get right. like, what I don't think is due to them.
0: Right. And we see this in families a ton, especially <laughs> when you're raising kids at different levels. Uh, how can we relate this parable to, to raising a family, Jason?
3: Yeah, if you've ever been around a little kid, you will know one of the things they will say is that's not, that's fair. not fair. We are exquisitely <laughs> attuned to fairness, right? We want things to be fair. We, and in some sense, that is okay. <clears throat> the world should be, you know, at some sense, family relationships, marriages, should have a pretty good balance of back and forth and it shouldn't just be one person doing everything while the other person plays video games, Mm -hmm. for example. That's just, that's not okay. But on the other hand, when we get too caught up in comparisons as these workers were doing, and again, it's understandable. They're saying, hey, you know, why did they get the same? But Jesus reminds them and he says, friend, I told you I would give you this denarius right I, We agreed on the wage there's no there 's no injustice here, just because I chose to maybe bless these other workers more or showed mercy to them it doesn 't mean that you uh, you know you were treated badly mm-hmm. and so again, back in family relationships sometimes one person is going to do more than the other person. There's something that happens, again, if you've ever been married, where you'll feel like, man, my spouse doesn't know all this stuff that I'm doing, or I feel unappreciated. (laughs) Everybody feels that, I think. In fact, when they've done research where they ask people, what percentage of the housework do you think you do in your relationship? <laughs> well, Everyone says what? 70. That's right. When they add the two percentages, it's always more than 100 percent. Because people are like, I probably do 85. I probably do 7. You know, it's so people never say oh, I barely do anything. You know, we just <laughs> we just all know what we do and what our lives consist of and how our situation is hard. So again, I just think this parable speaks back to this this tendency we have of being like, well, man, my life's hard and. Why did you get this thing that I didn't get? And so, and, and, you know, the, the covetousness or the envy or the, the getting caught up in those kinds of comparisons. And they're not usually very helpful to do that.
0: From the Savior's point of view, sometimes you have some longtime families that go back generations that have been born and raised and taught about the gospel and have received so many blessings from it versus perhaps somebody who finds the gospel later on in life. At the end of the day, what do they both receive? they have the opportunity to inherit eternal life. Whether we start at the very beginning or or later in the day, it just demonstrates how good he really is. Okay, so we have the parable of labors. Uh, we We also have another parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector.
3: So in this instance, two men go to the temple and they're praying and one is a Pharisee and the other is a publican. And in the first example, the Pharisee stands and prays, talking about how he's thankful that he's better than other men, essentially. And he's glad that he's not an adulterer and that he's not unjust and he fasts all the time and he gives his money away. And then the publican stands a little ways further and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he he feels bad. And, And Jesus says, that that one, the publican is the one that's going to go uh, to be more justified than the first, even though on the surface, the first guy is the one doing all these great things, but he also is really caught up in his own righteousness and his own zeal. And I think that's why Jesus is pointing out this publican who's in this attitude of repentance, which is better than the attitude of arrogance.
0: I'm curious, Melissa, especially from some of the different versions you have, if we can learn other insights yeah, well, the, I was
1: just thinking, I'm, am like, I have no idea what a publican is, but I'm glad that this says tax collector. Tax
3: collector.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like publican. And they were um, kind of
3: despised, right? The tax collectors, mm-hmm. like, we don't like tax collectors. Right, they well, were low in societies. Right. Well, because they, they
1: came after you for your money. Yeah. It's like, yeah, um, and I think they were reputed to be corrupt as well, right? They would collect taxes, but then they'd also like take some more.
3: And they were doing it for, for Rome. For Rome, which was right. not, you know, the the Jews were not a fan of people working. With, right. with their oppressors.
1: Well, I like, um, you know, sometimes the parables don't have introductions, but this one's kind of got an introduction. In um, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So that was like the damning thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was good that he was trying, doing all these things that that are, are righteous things to do, like paying tithes and not being an adulterer that's, and not stealing stuff. That's great. But he was like, I'm not like that guy, you know, <laughs> that nasty person. Um so it's this, it's this contempt.
3: It's it's this attitude of I'm not only right and you're wrong, but I'm better and you're worse, you know. And, mm. and and anyway, I think you're right to talk about how, you know, corrosive that is when people shift into modes of, you know, everything I say is correct and everything you say is wrong. And we just we see it, it gets ramped up on social media.
0: And do you see that as a as a marriage and family therapist where you you have two people in a marriage where it's just the pointing finger. Yeah, Absolutely. you should do this. If you do this, then I would do this. And then we could get along and kind of
3: placing the blame. All the time. And one of the things that happens is sometimes you'll see a couple in front of you and they see you as the judge and they're presenting their case. <laughs> okay. and They're presenting their evidence and they're saying, well, this, 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 this. And they're usually pointing out the other person's flaws and the other one will do the same thing. And what we have to do is shift into a mode of, We're all on the same team, we're working together and what can each of you do or what can you do when you look in your own heart to make things better? Maybe what have you done to contribute to this unhealthy situation? And until people are willing to do that, again, back to humility, not much will happen if they're continually in this blame, it's your fault mode. And so that's the challenge because it just seems to be human nature that it's hard to to ask what lack I had and look at our own stuff and it's easier to be like, I can see, The problems that you have or the the poor values that you have or where you're misguided, Mm -hmm. it's harder for me to do that for myself.
1: In light of these groups vilifying each other or not wanting to associate or mix with each other, I notice in uh, Matthew chapter 19 verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Uh, Large crowds followed him and he cured them there. So um, I looked in the note down here, and it says, Beyond the Jordan refers to the Transjordan, or Paria, regions to the east side of the Jordan River. Galileans traveling to Jerusalem for Passover would often cross over the Jordan to bypass Samaria. So here we have a map, and we see Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. These three regions are kind of stacked on top of each other in the north-south axis, and but people... There was so much animosity between these two groups that they would cross the river, come down on this side of the river, cross the river again. So um, avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with good reason. There was, there was so much animus between these two groups, but that, that doesn't help any of these problems. You know, the way that we get over that, I think, is by making connections, trying to love the enemy, trying to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us, but that's so hard.
3: And getting to know each other as people rather than as <clears throat> stereotypes or mm. groups, right? It's just so easy, again, for humans to become tribal and say, my university versus your university, to be kind of a silly example. But right. in other, you know, whether it's religion,
2: political politics parties particularly, are. right,
3: it, it just is easy to become, this is my people and your, your group is bad. But if I get to know you individually, I can say, oh, I know you now as a person and not a label. Right.
0: So speaking of this, you know, kind of passing judgment on certain types of people, I want to go back to this story of the young rich ruler. The optimist in me likes to think that perhaps he went away sorrowful when he was asked to give up everything because he was about to give up everything and then go follow Jesus. You know, like maybe he was really just, you know, he needed some time to think about it.
1: Or he had to check with his wife. Or had to check with his wife. Before giving away the house (laughs) and all the children's educations.
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And I think sometimes we can, we can pass judgment. Uh, we put this kind of stigma on him that, you know, he's never going to get to heaven because he's rich, he's prideful. And I just want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of, of assuming that just because you have wealth, that it's a bad thing. Because if we go back to verse 24, and again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Is he really saying that those that have material wealth can't go to heaven?
1: Having all the right resources and doing all the right things is still not enough, right? right. That's, that's that's just what that's we believe. True. But I but I think you could maybe read it that way. Okay.
3: Well, he does say with God all <laughs> things with God all things are possible, right? I mean, it is possible. It is with, possible with God's help. With God's and, help. And I think I think of what Paul says later in one of his letters that the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but it's those that get so caught up in and consumed by worldly things in whatever version that is, mammon, you know, pride, pleasures, those are big distractions to the kingdom of God. For sure. And I think, I think God continually challenges us to put our own needs second, like we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those ways. Money is powerful. You know, he tells us to tithe. He asks us to not, eat one day a month or a time you know fast he asks us in family relationships to be less selfish and to put other people's needs first I remember once teaching one of my kids about tithing you know and he was young and he was like oh man you know that's a lot of money it was like a dollar or something and and he was wrestling with this this concept of giving away money and And he said, "Man, imagine if you had to pay like fifty bucks in tithing." (laughs) And I was like, "Yeah, kind of." As you get older, it starts to become a real thing, right? You you have to really decide: Am I serious about this Mm -hmm. uh, covenant? Am I serious about being a disciple? Whether it's tithing or helping the poor or whatever it is. And again, I just think God is not going to let us off the hook with this one. He keeps asking, just like Jesus asks many times throughout the New Testament, You know, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, be generous.
0: So we kind of talked about this earlier about the family unit being kind of a training ground. How often do you see that getting in the way of, of a healthy marriage, the focus on finances uh, or money versus the focus on each other and others' needs?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes you hear people say something like, the reasons for divorce are money mm-hmm. or housework or sexual intimacy or whatever, and, and it's not, quite the right way to ask that question because it's not about money per se, it's the way people handle their money, right? It's the way, because money is one of those areas where everybody's going to have differences of opinion. So if I go to the store with a hundred bucks, I'm going to bring home different groceries than my wife would bring Mm -hmm. home if she took a hundred bucks to the store. We're just different people, we have different priorities. So that's always going to come up. And so people have to then navigate that and money's power, it, it means things to people. Some people you know, grew up with different values around money. So all that is to say, it's another opportunity for people to say, how can we compromise? And here's what I think, but what do you think? And then let's figure out a way to work together. That's very different than saying, you're terrible with money, I'm gonna do it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not letting you buy this thing that you want. That, that doesn't work well in a marriage. So again, that's just another one of those ongoing opportunities to learn how to be open and compromising and unselfish.
0: I like that. What other things did we uh, perhaps not touch on do we want to address in this portion of the show?
1: Well, there's a story at the very end of this chapter uh, of Matthew chapter 20, and also at the end of, I think it's in all three of them, Mark and Luke. In one version, the Matthew version is two blind men. This is um, Mark chapter 10, verse 46 in the David Bentley Hart version. And they came into Jericho, and as, as he was departing from Jericho along with his disciples and a considerable crowd, a blind beggar, Bar Timaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, sat beside the road. And hearing that it is Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and to say, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And many Persians admonished him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And coming to a standstill, Jesus said, Call to him. And they called to the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, arise, he calls to you. So throwing off his mantle and springing up, he came to Jesus and answering him. Jesus said, what do you wish that I might do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might see again. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he saw again and followed him upon the road. So um, here we see the audacity of this blind man, right? At that time, um, people with disabilities were seen as um, just not as important You know, they were totally marginal. They didn't have a lot of economic power. He was a beggar, it says. Uh, He was dependent on other people for food. And so people were just like, stop bugging Jesus. You know, don't make a scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But he cried out all the more and kind of insisted, please, um, please listen to me. Please help me. And and Jesus responded to that and said, uh, and healed him. Uh, So I think that's awesome. You know, even when People don't want Jesus to notice people, even when people say, "You know, you are beneath Jesus's notice." Jesus is like, "No, He comes to a standstill, and He He reaches out."
0: It's awesome. So, Melissa, when you're talking about these these blind men that are they're going to Jesus, they're kind of like uh, mocked uh, for doing it. Like they, you know, don't don't disrupt him. And to kind of contrast that in um, in the earlier uh, chapter we have this example of these little children in verse 13 of chapter 19, then were they brought unto him, little children. So in one instance, you have people bringing those to Christ and another, you have kind of people almost hindering someone from getting closer to the savior. Uh, What are some things that we can do to not get in the way of allowing somebody to establish and develop a relationship with Jesus Christ?
1: Well, you know how much I love metaphors and visuals. but I, I, I still think the metaphor kind of breaks down at a certain point because you really can't pick up a little child and pass him over to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But um, with regard to adults who you know, make their own choices, right. I think um, one of the ways that we can help people like Bartimaeus or like the two blind beggars in the story is to allow people to reach out to Christ in their own way. Because what they didn't like was that it said, that stop bugging Jesus, don't yell.
3: Been too loud.
1: Too loud, <laughs> right? Um, maybe we, instead of like, enforcing these ideas of how exactly people should go about following Christ, we should just let people who want to follow Christ do it in that, in that way and
0: trust that um, we're probably just as weird as they are but in our <laughs> own ways. Jason, as you've studied marriages and families, how has that strengthened your testimony on the need to live the gospel and the teachings of Jesus Christ?
3: As I've studied that both professionally and personally in my own family, you you just can't help but see a lot of overlap with these principles that we've been talking about. Things like the things that we talked about in the family proclamation earlier, like respect. I'm doing a research project right now about respect and how people describe that. And it encompasses a lot of things and it's essential in any relationship, regardless of where somebody is in the world or what their culture is. Everybody pretty much says, respect is better than being mean and disrespectful and cruel, right? Those are just essential values and we can learn those, and, but we can also uh, seek those from a gospel perspective in the sense of having spiritual help and spiritual gifts and help from God in developing those.
0: Well, I love the work you do and thank you for everything that you've done to add to this conversation, this episode. Melissa, it's always great to have you and learn from you and hear from your perspective. And thank you for joining us at home for this discussion. We encourage you to record and act upon any impressions that you've received and to share your insights with us on any of our social media platforms. Come Follow Up is also available as a podcast through byuradio.org or your preferred podcast provider. Search for Come Follow Up. Join us next week as we discuss the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem just before His death and resurrection. Thank you for watching.